0: Psalm 10 is where we will be this morning, Psalm 10. You can turn there with me, and we're continuing on our series in looking at different psalms and how they speak to us, real psalms for real life. Maybe you have asked this question before. God, why did you let this happen to me? Maybe you found yourself asking that question. Maybe you have wrestled with that. God, where are you? Where were you when this oppression happened to me? Maybe you've come to grips recently with hurt and trauma that's happened in your life. You've started to unravel years of mistreatment that, is, that, that has occurred. Maybe you have faced rejection. Maybe even what we call today abuse, or someone has misused their authority and their influence in your life to just simply further their own agenda and has left you shattered and broken, and you're asking, why, God? Why do you seem so distant? Where, where were you when you happened? If you're a God who's just and good and ever-present, where were you when that happened? Where were you when that assault happened? Where were you when that mistreatment occurred? We approach Psalm 10. It's dealing with an issue that is very relevant in today's world. Coming to grips with, with abuse is a major problem in our, in our society. According to the CDC, one in three women, okay, 33% a third, and one in four men, 25% a quarter, have reported facing severe physical violence from a romantic partner in their lives. A boyfriend, a girlfriend, a husband, a wife. That's stunning. One in three women in our society... One in four men. In the last year alone, one in seven children have faced some form of abuse. That's just in the last year. And and by the way, these are the numbers that are just sort of reported and understood. The most haunting statistic of all is the fact that the vast majority of abuse cases never, ever get reported. And of those that get reported, very, very few ever get prosecuted. And those who get prosecuted, very few bring about a conviction. Chances are the issue is far greater. We're just seeing sort of the tip of the iceberg poking up out of the water of horrific mistreatment that's occurring in in homes and in families and neighborhoods throughout our city. I speak to this issue today. I want to be very sensitive because I recognize, based on those statistics, that could be someone sitting in this church, somebody who's watching online, who's listening to this later on 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 the podcast. And maybe even that mistreatment has come at the hands of those who have held spiritual authority, a pastor, a deacon, a Sunday school teacher, someone who claimed to speak for God and even used the Bible as a further weapon of control and using biblical teachings of authority and submission to try to further coerce. Let me just say very clearly as we get started here, God hates abuse. This church hates abuse. And we believe that God has something to say to it. Here's one of the tragedies on this topic the church has sort of retreated and ceded the entire conversation to sort of the Me Too movement, which is exposing some real tragedies in our society but doesn't have answers, does not have lasting answers as to why and where you go from there. This is a psalm. Psalm 10, we'll read it in just a second. It's a psalm that speaks into the real world. Maybe some people treat the Bible as if it's sort of a holy book that just sort of we break it out on Sundays and blow the dust off the cover. Psalm 10 is a is a psalm that just sort of comes crashing into the midst of life as it really is it speaks to the woman who has had to flee for her own safety from a physically violent husband it speaks to the child who was victimized by a trusted family friend or even all too often a family member it speaks to the young lady who was assaulted on a, on a date through no fault of her own it speaks to the Christian who's being sort of ridiculed and mocked at work for their faith and for not going along with the secularizing program of our world today. Speaks to the employee, who, employee who's been battered down by a, a bullying boss, a boss who's just using his position to assert his control in every area of your life. Speaks to the, the quiet kid, the, the quirky kid, who maybe gets bullied at school for, for being a little bit different. Speaks to aging parents who have been neglected, by the children who should be caring for them. It speaks to the abused. It speaks to the traumatized. It speaks to the shattered. It speaks to the bullied. So if that's you, what you need more than anything this morning is to know that God is there for you. There's a lot of things that you may need. And there's a lot of things that the church should be providing and doing as far as offering counseling and help and financial aid and safety plans. But what you need more than anything is to know that God is there, to know that he is is not absent, he is not aloof, he is not uncaring, but know that he is present, that he is close, that he is compassionate, and that he is a God of justice. Now, Psalm 10, uh, many scholars believe Psalm 9 and 10 originally were one psalm. There's sort of an acrostic pattern that's going through there. But just taking as it appears in our Bibles, as it appears in in sort of most Hebrew texts, stands on its own as a psalm of lament. It's a psalm of individual and even corporate lament, calling for God to deliver from oppressive enemies. So it's the voice of the ancient psalmist, whoever that may be, crying out to God, but joining his voice are the voices of all of God's oppressed people through history. You think of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, Christians persecuted in the New Testament, and those even today who are facing oppression and attack. I noted sort of last week in our uh, discussion guide that the Psalms of lament have four parts. There's a turning to God, there's a laying out of the complaint, there is this bold request asking God for him to intervene, and there's a declaration of trust. And we see all four parts here, and that's basically going to be our our outline, letting just the, the structure of the psalm give us the, the message we need. So let's just read it. Follow along as I read Psalm 10. And as you hear this, hear this as God's very word to us today. Why standest thou afar off, O Lord? Why hidest thou thyself in times of trouble? The wicked in his pride doth persecute the poor. Let them be taken in the divisives that they have imagined. For the wicked boasteth of his heart's desire and blesseth the covetous, whom the Lord abhorreth, but also render it this way he blesses the covetous, and spurns the Lord, like that, Lord could be the object rather than the subject. The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in his thoughts. His ways are always grievous, or alternatively, his ways are stable and strong, like he gets away with it. Thy judgments, thy word, thy truth, are far above out of his sight. As for his enemies, he puffeth at them. He said in his heart, I shall not be moved, for I shall never be in adversity. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and fraud. Under his tongue is mischief and vanity. He sitteth in the lurking places of the villages, in the secret places doth he murder the innocent. His eyes are privily set against the poor. He lieth in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lieth in wait to catch the poor. He doth catch the poor when he draweth him into his net. He croucheth and humbleth himself that the poor may fall by his strong ones. Or the idea could be here: the the humble are are crushed and brought down under under the might of the, the enemy. Again, we have a statement of what's going on in his heart. He hath said in his heart, God hath forgotten. He hideth his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up thine hand. Forget not the humble. Wherefore doth the wicked contemn God? He hath said in his heart, thou wilt not require it. Thou hast seen it. For thou beholdest mischief and spite to requite it with thy hand. The poor committed themselves unto thee. Thou art the helper of the fatherless. Break thou the arm of the wicked and the evil. Seek out his wickedness till thou find none. The Lord is king forever. We read that again because sometimes we forget that God still rules even when evil is rampant. The Lord is king forever. The heathen are perished out of his land. Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble. Thou wilt prepare their heart or Establish or encourage their heart, and thou wilt cause thine ear to hear, to judge the fatherless and the oppressed, and the man of the earth, that the man of the earth may no more oppress. So, where do we turn? What, what does God have to say to the to the oppressed today? To those who have faced this kind of mistreatment that happens so rampantly in our world? What do we do? What do we do? If you're in that place, what do we do? You're, you're counseling someone else. Where do you, where do you point them? Well, number one, we, we need to turn to God. We need to cry out to God. Notice how honest this is in verse 1. Why standest thou afar off? The psalmist is saying, God, the, from, from my perspective, it seems that you're really distant, that you're, you're not present here. There's all kinds of things that are going on. It seems that if you were here, this wouldn't have happened. You're a God of justice. You're a God who is ever-present. But it seems like you're not present right now. It's honest. Why is it that he thinks that God feels distant? Because we we know that God is everywhere, that God is always present in all places at all times. It's the presence of injustice. This is the old problem of evil. If God is in control, why is evil running rampantly? When you have been oppressed, that's the biblical category here, you can often be left in a place where you're dazed, where you are exhausted. You can be left in a place where, why? Why? is the, the only question on your lips. This is a word that's an expression of confusion and of pain. You're asking God, where were you when the enemy attacked? Where were you when the abuser struck? Where were you when I was assaulted? Where were you? Why me? Why this? You see, sometimes life can just blindside you and sort of hit you to the side of the head and knock the spectacles of faith off your face. And in the haze, by all appearances, it looks like evil is winning and God is not there. That's what it feels like. That's what our finite perspective sometimes comes to conclude. It's easy. If you simply have a faith or a belief system that's based on, I'm just looking at the evidence of the world around me. It seems like God is not there. We ignore the statements of Scripture. It does seem like evil oftentimes runs, runs rampant, that there is no justice in the world. The power wins in the end, and the weak just need to deal with it. That morality is for suckers, and that the strong will always just take advantage and get their way. In the wake of oppression, in the wake of abuse, God can feel, and I'm using that word feel because it's not, it's simply my limited perspective. God can feel distant and seem absent. The Psalmist is simply telling it like it is. This is not a Oh, thou who dwellest between the cherubims kind of prayer, but this is a prayer that comes out of the heart. It's this turning to God that is honest. It doesn't seem like God is acting the way that he should. He doesn't seem close, he doesn't seem involved. So, what do you do when you when you feel that, when you experience that? Some people lose their faith in that, in that moment. There's the, you know, the church to hashtag and ex evangelicals. Sadly, what has happened many times, and I've seen it. People face horrific oppression and abuse sometimes in the context of a church and people don't believe them and nobody intervenes and they say, I'm out. Their faith gets destroyed by what has happened. What's a way we should respond when evil does come? You call out to God. When God seems distant, cry louder. When God seems absent, talk to him. This is not a question, a snarky question of sort of a rebellious teenager, right? You understand the difference between asking a question and questioning. Like, so God, where were This is the, God, I, I believe you should be here, but it doesn't seem like you are. This is a question of faith, not of cynicism. You see, it's never right to be angry at God or to blame God, but it is right to bring your questions and your complaints and your fears and lay them out before God. Righteous complaint. This is what we have here. Righteous complaint that eventually breaks through to faith. That is good and that is right. And that is an important step in the path of healing. It's not the same as unrighteous rage. This is not just venting. I'm so mad at you, God. How dare you? Rather, it is reaching out to God, calling for him to act in accordance with his character. Notice, why standest thou afar off? Oh, Lord, Yahweh, I am the God who has covenanted to to be there for his people. This is an appeal to the very character and the nature of God. Not one to say, I'm rejecting God, but one to say, God, you're there and I trust you. Even when life is unjust. You see, what can happen? We can fall into denial where we're like, you know what, my problems, I'm just going to pretend that they're not there and I'm going to look at the sunny side and I'm going to look for the silver lining and I'm going to live in denial, 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 denial. The other extreme is to... Give into just rage and anger and bitterness where the things that happen to you begin to define you. Where being a victim becomes an identity. What I love about this is it sort of takes neither of those ditches is the way to respond to evil. Neither denying it and being like evil doesn't matter. Hey, we get this big long description in verses 2 to 11. A blow by blow account of what evil looks like. There is no denying the reality and the horrific nature. There's a full confrontation with evil here nor is there just unbridled anger that never results. By turning to God, we neither give in to the ditch of denial nor the ditch of anger. We don't have to live in sort of a silent cell of denial nor fester in a prison of unresolved rage. We take it all to God and we move towards his promises. So when God seems distant, here's here's what I would, would say. Here's where to start. You're like, you know what, I have something that's happened in my life or is happening in my life that I've never really sort of processed and come to grips with. Talk about it to God using words. Okay, that's really duh symbol. But take all of the turmoil and like, let me get it out there. Let me write it out or pray it out. And you know, many burdens are so heavy to carry. You're like, I need to bring someone else in here to pray with me about this. Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Telling your story is the first place to sort of break the hold that a a victimizer, an oppressor can have over your life and taking it to God. When we take our complaints to God, they begin to lose their silent grip on our souls. Silence is sort of one of the chains, one of the shackles that keeps us from moving to the place of trust. Move to the second stage in, in this lament. We move from turning to God, Turning to God, crying out to him, just asking honestly the why, and this happened. To now, secondly, the, the complaint. We turn to God, then we bring the complaint. Verses 2 to 11 is a almost terrifying portrait of, of evil. There, there are a few things that, I, that you will encounter that are as, as accurate and as detailed and as terrifying as this description of evil. The Bible doesn't pull punches when it comes to exposing sin. The Bible doesn't pretend that, well, you know, everything's great in God's world and, and it's wonderful and let's sort of go watch, you know, the sunset kind of thing. No, so, you know, evil is real. Evil is real. Evil is painful. So look at verse 2. We kind of get a, a thesis statement. The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. So there's going to be really two parts to this description. He's going to talk about the, the pride of the oppressor, which he's going to really take down to verse 6. And then the second thing will be the persecution of the oppressor, verses 7 to 11. So pride and persecution. Sort of the the why he does it, because he's arrogant and prideful. And then the what he does is he, uh, he uses his tongue to tear down, verse 7. He's lurking and he's plotting. So notice the pride here. The wicked in his pride doth persecute the poor. And then the second phrase could be rendered this way, describing the poor who are taken in the devices that they, the wicked, have imagined. I think the second part of verse 2 is describing what happens to the poor, which happens to the, the victims. They're taken in the schemes, taken in the plots of the prideful oppressor. So this is scheming pride. Now, I like this description from one commentator. He says the, the pride here is, quote, a state of mind in which people imagine that they will not be held accountable for their actions. Okay, so there's a there's a kind of pride that is like, oh, I'm so special, I'm God's gift to mankind kind of pride. This kind of pride is, I can do anything I want, and I will get away with it. It's the mentality that leads them to persecute. That word persecutes, the word burn. To burn against the poor. To burn against them. The second clause, they're caught in the schemes that the wicked have devised. These are people who don't think they're going to be held accountable, and that leads them... To come up with ways to harm others to maintain their power and control. That's textbook definition of abuse. Here it is, 1000 BC in the Bible. Without anybody with a psychology degree figuring that out. Someone who will use any tool at their disposal to maintain power and control, even if it means crushing other people. See, oppression is not accidental. It says they have devices that they have schemed in verse 2. It's not a sickness. It's not a result of, well, they had a bad upbringing, so it made them this way. It's a result of a heart that is selfish and arrogant. It's not a sickness. It's not an accident. It's a deliberate pattern that flows from an evil heart. Abusers are going to be manipulative, controlling, and arrogant. They'll even feign repentance at times. They'll be like, honey, I'm so sorry that I did that. I'll never do that again to try to maintain control before reverting to the pattern that they've always followed. They'll use fear. They'll use force to get their way. They're people who will make it impossible for others to contribute to decisions, and they won't allow disagreement. They'll make others feel fearful when they try to assert independence. They'll use threats of violence or actual physical violence to get their way. They'll blame the other people in the relationship for things that aren't their fault to take it away from themselves and never take accountability for what they do. Many abusers will monitor the movements and the actions of the people they're trying to control, especially when it's like a, a, in, a, in a home situation and they will forbid those within the relationship to talk to other people outside of the relationship about what's going on as always to control. Those are the descriptions of what this looks like, this scheming pride. But notice what's driving it. Here's what is going to be missed in a lot of discussions in the secular world about abuse. What they're going to miss completely is the vertical dimension, the fact that this has everything to do with God. The wicked... Literally, okay, the, the the idea here is praises his heart's desire. He worships his own desires. He condemns. He spurns God. Verse four says, God is not in all his thoughts. His pride is driven by a functional, practical atheism. Now, I've met many people who are sort of philosophical atheists, who are not like this, and I've met people who claim to be Christians who are prideful like this. We're not talking about like philosophical atheism, the person who comes along and says there's no God. We're talking about the person who may claim that there is a God, and yet lives as if he doesn't exist, who lives as if the accountability will never come their way. Verse 3 literally says, The wicked praises the desires of his heart, and the greedy curses and treats Yahweh with contempt. This is, this is stunning. He praises his own desires. That's so what that word boasts is the Hebrew word for praise while spurning and maligning God. One of the ways people can malign God is by coming to church and singing Lesson Assurance Jesus' is mine." when in their heart they don't really believe and trust in Him. so He will hold me fast while they're thinking about how can I sort of functionally be God in someone else's life? How can I use theology to get my way? He worships Himself. That's what verse 3 is saying. And therefore He ends up mistreating other people. Abuse is ultimately a worship disorder. Where the one who wants to be in control regards themselves as unaccountable to anyone, including God. Setting themselves functionally up as God in the life of someone else, determining every decision, every direction, every movement. So God is completely absent from his thoughts or plans. That's what verse 4 is saying. God's not in his thoughts. God's not, his plans are driven purely by selfishness. Even if he brings God into it as a way to lend legitimacy God does not really matter. So the wicked man's mistreatment of others, this is crucial, is ultimately rooted in his disdain for God. You see, we often miss this vertical dimension to our suffering, but the psalmist zooms in on it, and he's going to come back to it again and again and again. This has everything to do with God. Simply a low view of God, God doesn't care, God's not present, God's not just, leads to a low view of other people and a high view of yourself. When God is down here, then I can do what I want. When there is no God, then all bets are off. And if I'm going to live as if God is so distant and remote and removed, I can do what I want, all bets are off. Verses five and six shows that this pride is, is not only a godless pride, it's not only a scheming pride, it is audacious. Uh, his ways are always stable, always strong, even prosperous. My judgments are far out of his sight. His enemies, he puffs at them. He says, in my heart, I'll never be moved. There's an audacity that says, I'm going to keep doing what I'm going to do, and nobody is going to be able to stop me. I'm going to get away with it again and again and again and again. This is why when there is someone who is an abuser, there's typically a wake of victims. Because it's not just a one-off, oops, I slipped up. But it's a whole pattern of life where taking advantage of people again and again and again. Their ways are firm and established. This notion of security. People are good at covering their tracks, deceiving everybody around them. And then verse 5 says, Thy judgments are far above out of sight." I'm not talking about God's judgment as his condemnation, but God's truth and God's word. In other words, the, the, the word of God is about as relevant to his actions as the, as the orbit of Venus or the ring around Saturn. It's, just, it's, it's so distant, it has nothing to do with life. These folks may talk highfalutin theology, right? May oh yes, well, let's talk about the decrees of God and about apologetics and all of these different things. But it's just a cover. It's just a cover. I'll never move. I'll never be moved. I'll never suffer suffer hardship. It says, as for his enemies, that is the the poor, the victims, the the people in his life that he's taking this ungodly control over. He snorts at them, just kind of. You little peons, I'm not, you're not going to stop me in any way. It's this notion I can get away with it. And this is what, by the way, fuels all sin. Every time we sin, just set the, this category of, of oppression aside, any time we sin is we believe the lie, I think I can get away with it, right? We, we, the idea that God's not going to bring the hammer down on me. God's not going to judge me. Um, yeah, it might be judgment at the end of the age, but I'm only 30, and that's a ways off, and so think i'll go ahead and sin anytime we sin we're believing this lie in that moment god's not going to hold me account to account or some people will twist scripture to say god's going to forgive me i can continue in sin and grace will abound all sin is driven by this functional atheism that in the moment we become theological amnesiacs right we forget the reality that god is present that god is there that's what drives it so that says pride. But now verse 7, we see the cruelty. By the way, structurally, you notice verse 6 says, he has said in his heart. And then verse 11 has, he said in his heart. That's sort of what structurally breaks the, this description of wickedness into two. So you'll notice now his cruelty, okay, his persecution. His mouth is full of cursing, deceit, fraud under his tongue, his mischief and vanity. His words are cruel. His words are cruel. His speech is marked by cursing and deceit and oppression. He'll use his words to crush and to belittle, to gaslight, to deceive, to silence, to hurt. He'll use words to sort of maintain control over his victims. Say things like, you'll never make it without me in your life, or you're a failure who never amount to anything, or nothing you ever do is good enough, or he'll play the, the, the pity card. Nothing I ever do is ever good enough for you, is it, as a way to sort of manipulate you to do what you want? Or, you're crazy, that's not what happened, and you know it. Or, it's your fault that I hit you. Those are literal things that people will say. Or, or, wicked form of abuse. Yes, verbal, verbal sin is serious sin. These are not just sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Or those are just mean tweets. Words matter immensely to God. Words are a form of of abuse in this category. So what spews out of his mouth is that his mouth is full of cursing and deceit. Jesus says, out of the abundance of the what? The heart, the mouth speaks. What spews out of the mouth springs from the heart. It's just a little snapshot, just a little glimpse of what is really going on in the heart. Now, what's really uncomfortable about this particular verse is we can all see categories where words are truly used as a club to beat people down. Yet Paul in Romans chapter 3 quotes this verse, and he asks this question, Are we better than they? For we have concluded before that all are under sin. For there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are together become unprofitable. They have turned out of the way. He goes on with this description of sin and wickedness that defines all of humanity and he quotes this verse to say that all of us to some degree have hearts that are full of deceit and anger and bitterness that comes out in our words that condemns us before God. So he concludes to say, therefore in his sight shall no flesh be justified by the law. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight for by the law is the knowledge of sin. This standard, while it particularly speaks to those who are oppressive, also condemns all of us. Showing that all all of us are sinners who need divine grace and mercy. I don't want this to be taken the wrong way. But when it comes to our standing before God, we are often more like our oppressors than we care to think. Yes, oppression and abuse is a serious, serious sin, and we don't assign blame proportionally. right? There, there is disproportionate. Blame assigned to the one with the power and the the oppression going on. But don't buy into this notion that just because you have been hurt, you are sort of alleviated from any accountability before God. We are all accountable before God. Even those who have been hurt, we we must be redeemed by grace. There's no sense in which you're redeemed and saved by being sort of, oh, you're a victim, therefore now you, you... no, we all need God's grace. We all need God's mercy, both oppressors and oppressed. That's not equalizing. That's not saying that these are one and the same thing. Obviously, there is a huge difference, and God assigns, assigns blame justly and rightly. And that's not to even say that you are to be blamed or that it is your fault that abuse happens to you. But it is to say that all of us are accountable before God for what we say and what we think and what we want and what we do. Come on into verse 8. His cruelty comes out in his plots. He sits in the lurking places. In the secret places, he murders the innocent. His eyes are set against the poor. He lies in wait secretly like a lion. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He catches them. He draws them in his net. He crushes them. He brings them down. We're seeing someone who is deliberately trying to bring others down. Notice the method. Sometimes he's like a mugger who's hiding in the shadows, who's sort of ducking down an alleyway and coming out and taking advantage of his victim. Other times he's compared to a a lion that's lurking in the bushes waiting for the the helpless prey to come by so he can jump out and take advantage. This is someone who is looking for their target, who is looking for someone who is weak and unprotected, who they can sort of lure in and take advantage of. He's also compared to a hunter. So these three images give us a, a terrifying picture of what the oppressor's plots look like. They operate in secrecy. See, a lot of times we think, oh, man, if someone were to come through the doors who was abusive, we'd be able to spot them a mile away. Chances are, actually, no, they would be the least likely person that you would think because they're really good at covering their tracks. Notice who they target. We get these these phrases here, verses 8 to 10. He murders the innocent. Okay, so this here balances what I just said a minute ago. None of us are innocent in God's eyes. We are all guilty in God's eyes. But when it comes to those horizontal relationships with other people, There really are people who are the bad guys, and there are those people who are innocent, who did not deserve what happened to them. All right? So you're walking down downtown Mobile, minding your own business, and someone jumps out and mugs you. There was nothing you did to provoke that attack except be there. You're you're, you're innocent in that case. You've not done wrong that brought that about in your life. It's not a self-defense situation that they can appeal to. A child who is abused, who is molested, It's not their fault. Even though the abuser may try to say, oh, you did this and you did that, and it's your fault this happened to you. That's happened to you in the past. It is not your fault. And Satan will use guilt and shame of things that happened to you that were perpetrated against you to make you feel like you're dirty and you're no good and you're not worthwhile. In Christ, how does God see you? God sees you as whole. God sees you as washed. God sees you as redeemed. He does not see you as defective or deficient or somehow broken because someone stole your innocence from you. But be careful, by the way, church, how we talk about purity. Like, oh, someone has to be in a certain sort of physical condition for purity. Purity is a matter of the heart, not a matter primarily of the body. Some people have had things happen to them that were not their fault, and yet will be sort of cast aside as you're you're no good. This category of the innocent warns us against that. This is not a fight between equals. Another phrase that's used here, uh, we've got the word poor that's used. His eyes are set privily against the poor, verse 8. Another word poor in verse 9. There's actually two different Hebrew words. There's a Hebrew word that's used only in verse 8 and 10 and 14. There's three times in the whole Old Testament. And it has the idea of someone who is hapless, someone who is simply the unfortunate victim of someone else's wrongdoing. This is not a fight between equals, but a person with greater power and strength taking advantage of the weak. So don't treat the victim as an equal contributor to the problem. There are some situations in counseling that it's a marriage counseling problem. People are just not getting along. And there's other cases where it's an abuse issue, where where husband, the person with the power and the strength, is using that to dominate, where it is no longer an equal opportunity. Let's treat this as a, you know, both of you need to work things out. We're accountable for our actions, but there's a level of tyranny and control here that is very much one-sided. So we get, we get the abuser's methods. We see his targets. He's going after the weak. He's picking on people who can't really fight back. This is the classic situation, the bully on the, on the playground, sort of writ large. I'm bigger, I'm stronger. Nobody likes you, so I'm going to take advantage of you. The attack shows us the, the result. This is describing, So again, okay, the Hebrew here is a little tricky, but I think what it is saying is the, the humble, the, the ones who are attacked, they're crushed, they sink down, and they fall by his might. What a picture of the results of this kind of attack, where someone's life is just ripped apart, and the rest of their lives they feel like they're picking up the pieces. He leaves them traumatized, devastated, helpless. These people are marked by isolation and hopelessness and just undeserved shame. This is a incredible portrait that's being being painted here, isn't it, of the of the oppressor and of the oppressed, of the attacker, of the victims. That is just stunningly accurate and detailed. But don't lose sight of what drives him. what drives this oppressor. Again, God has forgotten verse eleven. He hides his face, he will never see it. The fundamental issue here is a theological one. Is he is functionally operating as if God does not matter. Sure, he might quote Bible verses and use religious power and say, you need to submit to me, or all these different things, but it's simply a hideous twisting of God's word. Now, just the point I want to make here before we move on. Notice something very simple here. The psalmist is not simply talking about evil. He's not just sort of talking this out with a, with a friend or a therapist there's nothing wrong with that he's doing something more, he's talking to God about evil not just talking about the evil and saying this is what has happened and I'm going to be honest about what has happened and I'm not going to downplay it but I'm going to talk to God about the evil that has happened to me I'm going to process this but there's going to be a God word direction here, this does a couple of things number one, it frees you from that place of sort of silence and I don't know how to express this and is there anybody that I can trust you can trust God He's not going to turn your story against you. It's not going to come back out and be leaked on the the editorial pages of the New York Times or something like that. No, you can trust God with your pain and with your hurt. Here's the other thing it does. When you talk to God about the evil, it makes you realize the, the sin is not ultimately committed against you, but the ultimate victim of the evil is God. And God will defend his reputation in his name. Someone is living as if God does not exist. Someone is acting as if God is not just and God will not intervene. That is an assault on the very character and nature of God. It makes you realize when I take it to God and realize the sin is against God, God is for me. Recognizing that sin is against him breaks the isolation that often comes with this kind of oppression. You see, oppressors rely on secrecy and silence. Don't you dare tell anyone what I did to you. This will be our little secret. One of the most powerful weapons you have, perhaps the most powerful weapon you have, is speaking. And it starts with speaking to God. Pray your pain to God. See, I don't want to unload on someone like that. No, Pray your pain to God. He's infinite. He can handle it. He already knows, by the way. Pray it to God in the kind of detail that we have here. Lay it all out. Lay it out. Lay out all the ugliness. You see, the Bible does not ignore evil, does not deny it or downplay it. It names it and it confronts it. So lay out the complaint. So we've gone through these first two stages. It's turning to God. There's, there's the complaint. This complaining to God, it is good and right to take our complaint and our burdens to He's our Heavenly Father, He loves us. Lay out the evil before him. We now move into the third stage here where we begin to see some resolution to all of this. The third step here, we're just moving. It's almost like last week we're coming out of the depths to the the heights of hope, is ask. Ask for justice. Call for God to act. We see this now in verse 12. Notice how different verse 1 is from verse 12. We divide the psalm structurally in these addresses to God. Verse 1 is saying, Why, Lord... Okay, like, where where are you? And he goes through the complaint. Now, verse 12 now says, arise, Lord. He's gotten from the place of wondering where is God to saying, God is present. God is involved. The sin is against him. I'm going to call for God to act. Arise, O Lord. Lift up thine hand. Forget not the humble. Wherefore doth the wicked contemn God? That is, malign God, spurn God. He said in his heart, Thou wilt not require it. It's like, God, he's insulted you by his actions. Thou hast seen it. But thou beholdest mischief and spite, to requite it with thy hand. The poor committed themselves unto thee. Thou art the helper of the fatherless. So several, several requests that are being grouped under here. The first one is, God, would you reverse the evil that has been done? There's some incredible reversals here. aren't quite as clear in, uh, in our translation but they're, they're pretty clear when you when you take a, pe- take a peek at the Hebrew. Um, so in verse 11, the wicked had said, God has forgotten. Now notice verse, thir- uh, verse 12 says, God, do not forget the humble. So the wicked saying, "Ah, God's forgotten. God doesn't see it. We turn around and say, God, don't forget. So there's a reversal of that. Verse 3, the wicked had spurned God. That phrase, the Lord abhoreth, probably should be rendered. Uh, he spurns the Lord. The exact same Hebrew word to say, God, why on earth, how dare he spurn you? Verse 11, the wicked man had smugly thought that God does not see. Verse 14 says emphatically, you have seen. You have seen. These lies that the wicked are believing are in fact lies because, God, you have seen. Verse 4, verse 4 could be rendered this way. Uh, The wicked, through the height of his nose, that's literally the Hebrew, the height of his nose. You can see him stuck up with his nose in the air. He does not seek. God is not in all his thoughts. Like, who's the he? He could be saying, God does not seek out an accounting. So we get down here in verse 15. God, seek out the wickedness till he find no more. That's the same Hebrew word as seek in verse, uh, verse 4 as in verse 15. God, would you seek out an accounting? Would you uncover what has been done? We pray boldly for God to reverse the evil. Now, we're praying for God to deal with it defi- decisively and finally. This is not an angry God because of me. Notice the concern here is, God, your glory, your fame. There's a vertical dimension to this request. So the same one who asks why now says, rise up. It's a call for God to go to war. The language here in verse 12 is, it echoes some of the language um, in the book of Numbers when God leads his people into battle. God, would you go to, to bat for me? Would you go to war for me? The psalmist has laid out his complaint. But here's something, get this, he does not stay there. He comes to an accounting of here's the evil, here's the oppression that has happened, but he doesn't stay there and let that be the defining trait of his life. Uh, many people today rightly are recognizing the horrific things that have happened to them, but here's the danger, his victim doesn't just become something that happened, but something that I am. It right, becomes an identity, and a place where you stay and you never move on to say, yes, these things happen, but God is bigger than this, and who I am in Christ is different than this. So we boldly pray for God to reverse the evil. Now we go on to verse 14. There is a prayer for God to rescue the trusting. You have seen it. You behold mischief and spite to requite it with thy hand. By the way, the idea of lift up thine hand is not just God lifting his hand to wave, but it is God lifting his hand to strike. God, would you by your hand, by your power, act on behalf of those who have been harmed? Rescue the trusting. The psalmist's own feelings in verse 1 was God seems distant. The abuser has asserted in verses 6 and 11 that God is, doesn't even exist for all intents and purposes. So now the psalmist says here in verse 14, you do see, you do record the evil, and you will act on behalf of those who trust in you. Sometimes you can feel like your hurt is buried under years of silence. That is buried under layers of secrecy and deception. When you feel that, remember that God sees. God sees. God sees the hurt. God sees the trauma. God sees the pain. God sees the suffering. God sees the tears. God sees the scars. Now here's the key. At the end of verse 14, this is not just an automatic thing for this is true for everyone who's ever been hurt. notice the end of verse 14. The poor again, that's the word that the hapless, the one who has been taken advantage of, committeth himself unto thee. There's an act of trusting here. It's not just sort of like, well, anyone who's been hurt, there's just sort of virtue in being hurt. No, 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 they're, 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 This is an individual who has entrusted themselves to God. They have cast themselves upon him. They have left themselves unto God. We, had, we read earlier today 1 Peter chapter 4, and the last verse says, the, the people who suffer should entrust themselves to a righteous creator. That's what this is describing. Someone who has completely abandoned themselves to God to say, you alone, I'm collapsing into your arms to protect me and to hold me and to keep me. What a description of faith. Saving faith. Ongoing faith in the Christian life is me abandoning myself to the promises and the character and the goodness of God. That's what's being beautifully described here. You see, the key is that helpless abandon themselves upon God. That the fatherless call out to the father. That the broken seek out the great physician of souls. When evil happens to you, there's often a crossroads in front of you. One of them is to go down the path towards really practical atheism. If, if God didn't stop that, there must be no God. Many people have gone down that, ro- that road, have been pushed down that road through, through pain. And tragically, what happens when you run into practical atheism and vengeful bitterness? You tragically become more and more like your enemy. You think about it. That's what marks the enemy is vengeful bitterness and practical atheism. If you give into that, you're becoming more and more like them, and that hold continues. The other option is to say, I'm going to run into the arms of God who is my hope, What a statement that you can commit yourself unto him. You are the helper of the fatherless. The father of the fatherless, the protector of the oppressed. God doesn't look at us and say, well, you're broken and you're messed up. He rescues us by his grace and he loves us infinitely in Christ. You see, we're not defined as Christians by what anyone has done to us or said to us. We're defined by what God has done for us in Christ. And so the gospel comes in, and redefines our flawed understandings of who we are. Now, verse 15 is a prayer very simply for God to judge the wicked. Break the arm of the wicked. That's not talking about God literally going and like, break his hole and his radius or something. No, this is talking about the hand is a picture of power, the arm is a picture of power. We've seen throughout this how the, how the oppressors misuse power to beat down people that they, that they don't like, that they want to take advantage of. Saying, God, would you break that power, break the hold that they have, It's a call for justice. Now, maybe that, that bothers you a little bit. I don't like this violent language of God breaking people's arms. And God's a God of love and mercy and kindness and, and all of these things. Well, try this one on for size. Verse, uh, just over a page in Psalm 11, verse 5. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked in him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. You have a category for that in your theology, that there are some individuals that God's soul hates. God hates sin. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire, and brimstone and an, an, a horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. That's Psalm 11, verse 6. Or Matthew 18. Those who harm children. Jesus says, it's better for him that a millstone were tied around his neck and he were thrown in the depths of the sea. get a Cinder block tied around your throat and chunked off into the Gulf of Mexico. So would be, that would be a better fate for you than the one that you would face, that you will face when you stand before God. God has terrifying judgments that He pronounces on those who harm, who abuse, who oppress. Now, one of the ways God does this, according to Romans 13, is that He has given the sword to the government. So it is entirely appropriate when laws are broken to take this to the appropriate authorities because they are the God-ordained instrument at times to bring God's justice here and now. We know God will bring justice on the final day of judgment, but sometimes in God's kindness, he allows for justice to be brought here and now. And one of the instruments that he does, it is through the sword that is in the hand of the appropriate authorities. It is right. It's not wrong for you to say, I'm going to seek justice because Laws have been broken, and more people will be hurt if this isn't dealt with. The legal system and the criminal justice system, yes, they're flawed, and they don't always get it right. But praise God that they are open for you to seek justice. The church has given the keys of the kingdom, right, in Matthew 18. That's the ability to exercise discipline. God has ordained institutions to be the way that he carries this justice out often in time. But even in the end, the final analysis, there's often so much that happens in our world where there is no justice, on this side of eternity, there is going to be a day of justice that will come. The dead, small and great, will stand before God, and the books will be opened, and every wrong will eventually be made right. And so we entrust our case to the one who will judge rightly in the end. Now, here's what this does for us. Some people would think, man, if you believe in God's judgment and hellfire, that's going to make you an angry, vindictive, violent person. It actually does the opposite. If I did not believe in the justice and the wrath of God, I would go insane at all of the evil that is never taken care of in this world. I would go insane. You would maybe go become a revolutionary and say, we've got we've to make everything right now because there's so much evil and justice suffering, and we've got to just take care of this now. You'd become a vigilante. You would, be, you would just go crazy with anger. But God says, entrust it to me. I will judge it far better than you ever will. You know what that does? That liberates my heart from trying to be judge, jury, and executioner. It says, God is the judge and the jury and the executioner. I'm trusting this with Him, and I believe that one day He will make all things right. He will make all things new, and He will judge those who have oppressed. I don't have to give in to vengeance, to anger, to hurt. God's justice and God's wrath, that doctrine, is a healing balm for those who have been hurt. It's a key that can free you from a cell of self-righteous bitterness and perennial victimhood. God wants us out of that cell, and it's knowing that he's going to judge. I want to finish on this final point here, verses 16 to 18. This psalm ends on such a soaring note of praise. I I love this. There's this declaration of trust now. So we've gone through three of the four sort of movements of 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 a lament psalm, of turning to God, of complaining of asking boldly for him to act. Now we come to this final stage, trusting, praising the Lord as King forever. What a contrast to verse one! It seems like God's not ruling and reigning. Actually, God does rule and reign forever. God rules. God will reign forever and ever. The, the, the wicked said earlier, "I'll never be moved in all my generations." He says, you eventually. Your life is eventually going to come to an end, but God's going to reign forever. God will reign forever." Revelation eleven fifteen 15 adds something to this. The, the, the God who is king forever and ever is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. We sing that in the hallelujah chorus. And he shall reign forever. We're talking about Jesus in the context of Revelation 11, verse 15. The one who loved us, who died for us, who rose again. That's the God who reigns forever from heaven's throne. Now, when you're in the sort of the middle of processing suffering and hurt, there's some truths that you need to hold on to. Like, imagine you're sort of hanging on the end of a rope. There's a a rope that you need to hang on to so you don't fall into despair. And one of them is that God is truly sovereign. Some people, that can be terrifying. Well, that means God was in control, and what does that mean? I would much rather live in a world of evil in which God is in control and has a good purpose than a world where evil is running rampant with no meaning or purpose whatsoever. The Lord will reign forever. The heathen are perished out of his land. He's going to judge get this as well. Verse 17, Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble. I've cried, I've prayed, I thought you were distant, but I've come to a place where my heart is assured that you have really heard. God really has heard. God really hears the, the, the desire. By the way, that's the same word that the wicked worships his desire. The righteous pray theirs. The things that my heart longs for, I've taken them to God in prayer, and He has heard. So, what did He long for in verse 1? That God would be close to know that He understands. Verse 17, we've come out the other side of this to recognize He really does. He really does know. He really does understand. He really does listen. Verse 18, He's going to listen. To judge the fatherless, that doesn't mean he's going to pour judgment on them, but to defend the fatherless, which in the ancient world, these were the ones who had no voice, who were taken advantage of. In our in our world today, the most defenseless uh, demographic in our, in our population are the unborn. And God will judge and vindicate on their behalf. The blood that cries from the ground, he will one day vindicate. The fatherless, the oppressed, those who are taken advantage of, It says, why the result will be that the man of the earth may no more oppress. If you just had verses 2 to 11, you would come away that the psalmist views the oppressor as a guy who's 15 feet tall. He's almost godlike in his control. By the end of the psalm, he has seen God, and he realizes he's not 15 feet tall. He's a mere mortal. He's puny. Initially, God seemed really distant and small, and the oppressor seemed large and, and overwhelming. By the end of the psalm, because we've come to grips with who God is, God is the one who is infinite and great, and by comparison, all men, all human beings, all oppressors, all abusers are mere mortals. They're going to no more oppress. The day is going to come when it's all cast into hell, when God judges. So the psalm begins with the anxious question of why. Now, I want to just end on this note. Verse 1 reminds me of another statement. A few psalms to the right. Psalm 22, verse 1, says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's a psalm that goes on to describe an even greater gripping detail, that sense of being abandoned. And we know those words because they were quoted by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ as he hung between heaven and earth on the cross. You see this cry of God, where are you? was also spoken, was also on the lips of our Savior. The same Jesus is the one through whom we pray. When we come to God with this complaint and with this burden, there's not this God who's aloof in heaven, sort of sitting, uh, uh, John Stockton, like sitting on a deck chair, just kind of drinking sweet tea. He's the God who was on the cross. The God who knows what it is, to be rejected, who knows what it is to be tortured, who knows what it is to be abandoned. And he did it, beloved, for our sin. So I've been ridiculed. He was ridiculed. I've been hurt. He was hurt. I've been been abandoned. He was abandoned. He knows. He will understand. I want to end with this. John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ, Quotes from a poem called The Long Silence. I have no idea where it came from. I've not been able to find anything about it. I'll read this. It's lengthy. At the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them. But some groups near the front talked heatedly, not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering? Snapped a brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, death. In another group, a former slave lowered his collar. What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime but being black. In another crowd, a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes. Why should I suffer, she murmured. It wasn't my fault. Far out across the plain, there were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he permitted in his world. How lucky God was to live in heaven where all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear, no hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each of these groups sent forth their leader, chosen because he had suffered most. A Jew, a slave, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly contorted uh person with arthritis, a disabled child. In the center of the plane, they consulted with each other. At last, they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges, be tried by a prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. At last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone, then let him die. Let him die so that there can be no doubt that he died. Let there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, Loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. When the last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word, no one moved, for suddenly all knew that God had already served his sentence.